Chapter 9 of The Shortstop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Rowdy Delaney, Idaho, USA. The Shortstop by Zane Gray. Chapter 9 On the Road. At six o'clock on the 12th of June, the Finley Baseball Club, fifteen strong, assembled at the railroad station to begin a two-weeks' trip on the road. Having taken three games from Columbus, and being now but a few points behind that team, they were an exceedingly lively group of young men. They were so exuberant with joy that they made life a burden for everybody, particularly for Mac. The little manager had trouble enough at home but it was on the road that he got his gray hairs. "'Sure, Cass, you ain't after taking that dog again,' asked Mac. Castorius had a vicious-looking beast, all head and jaws, under his arm. "'Dog!' roared Cass, insulted. "'This is a blooded bull-terrier pup. Course I'm going to take him. We can't win the pennant without Algy.' "'Algy? Is that his name?' burst out Mac, who had already exhausted his patient. That's a fine name for a mongrel brute. He's uglier than a mud fence. As Mac concluded, a rat ran across the platform. Algy saw it, and with a howl wriggled out of his master's arms and gave chase. The platform was crowded with people, of whom ladies made up the greater part. Algy chased the rat from under the trucks, and between the trunks, right into the crowd. Instantly a scene of great excitement prevailed. Women screamed and rushed frantically into each other's arms. Some fell over their grips. Several climbed upon trunks. All of them evinced a terror that must have had its origin in the movements of the escaping rat, not the pursuing pup. And the course of both animals could be marked by the zigzag line of violent commotion in the crowd. Presently a woman shrieked and seemed to sit down upon a moving object, only to slip to the floor. Algy appeared with the rat between his jaws. It was a cinch he'd get it, yelled Cass. He gathered up the pup and hid it under his coat. Line up, line up, shouted Mac as the train whistled. The players stepped into a compact, wedge-shaped formation, and when the train stopped in the station, they moved in orderly mass through the jostling mob. Ball players value a rest to tired legs too much to risk standing up and even in the most crowded stations always board the train first. "'Through to the Pullman!' yelled Mac. Chase was in the seventh heaven of delight. He had long been looking forward to what the players called on the road, and the luxurious Pullman suited his dreams of travel. He and Winters took a seat opposite a very stout old lady, who gazed somewhat sourly at them. Havel and Thatcher were on the other side of the aisle. Cass had a seat in the forward end. Mac was behind, and the others were scattered about. There were some half-dozen passengers besides, notable among whom was a very tall, thin, bald-headed man sitting in front of Havel. Chase knew his fellow-players too well by this time to expect them to settle down calmly. On the road was luxury for ball-players. Fast trains, the best hotels, all expenses paid, these for a winning baseball team were things to appreciate. Chase settled back in the soft cushioned seat to watch, to see, to enjoy every move and word of his companions. 
"'Where will we sleep?' he asked Winters. "'Never on a sleeper?' Chase smiled and shook his head. Then Enoch began to elaborate on the beds that were let down from the ceiling of the car, and how difficult they were to get into and out of, especially the latter in case of fire, which broke out very frequently on Pullman's. "'And if anybody yells fire, you skedaddle to the fire escape,' concluded Enoch. "'Fire escape? On a train? Where is it?' queried Chase, wonderingly. "'Don't you know where the fire escape is?' asked Enoch, in innocent surprise. His round, owl eyes regarded Chase in a most kindly light. "'Well, you ask the porter. He'll take and show you.' Straight away Chase forgot it in the interest of other things. The train was now in smooth, rapid motion. The fields and groves and farms flashed by. He saw the conductor enter the car and stand by Cass. Cass looked up and then went on calmly reading his paper. Tickets, said the conductor sharply. Cass paid not the slightest attention to him. Tickets, repeated the conductor, getting red in the face. He tapped Cass not lightly on the shoulder. What? demanded Cass. Your ticket. I do not wish to be kept waiting. Produce your ticket. I don't need a ticket to ride on this bum road. The conductor looked apoplectic. He reached up and grasped the bell cord. Your ticket, or I'll stop the train and put you off. Put me off? I'd like to have a tintype of your whole crew trying to put me off this train. Mac came into the car, and divining how matters stood, hurried forward to produce his party ticket. The conductor, still in high dudgeon, passed on down the aisle. "'Good evening, Mr. Conductor. This is fine weather for travelin,' said Enoch, in his soft voice. The conductor glanced keenly at him, but, evidently disarmed by the placid round face and kind round eyes, replied in gracious affirmation. Enoch whispered in Chase's ear, "'Wait till the crew finds Cass's bulldog. Don't miss that.' Some thirty miles out of Finley, the train stopped at a junction. A number of farmers were lounging round the small station. Enoch raised the window and called one of them. "'Hey, what's the name of this place?' he asked of the one who approached, an angular, stolid, rustic in overalls and top boots. "'Brookville, mister,' was the civil reply. "'Brookville? Well, I swan. You don't say. Fella named Perkins live here?' "'Yep, Hiram Perkins.' "'Hiram. Hiram Perkins, my old friend.' Enoch's round face beamed with an expression of benign gratitude, as if he would, were it possible, reward the fellow for his information. Tell Hiram his old friend Cy Hayrick was passing through, and sends regards. Well, how's things? Plowin' all done? You don't say. And corn all planted? Do tell. And the ham trees grown? All right. What? questioned the farmer, plainly mystified, leaning forward. How's your ham trees? Never here to sitch. Wall, doggone me. Why, over in Indiana, our ham trees is sproutin' powerful. And how about bee's knees? Got any bee's knees this spring? The rustic stretched his long neck. Then, as the train started off, Enoch put his head out of the window and called, Rubberneck! Rubberneck! The stout lady in the opposite seat plainly sniffed her disgust at these proceedings on the part of a grown man. His innocent round stare in no wise deceived her. She gave him one withering glance, adjusted her eyeglasses, and went on reading. Several times following that, she raised her hand to her face, as if to brush off a fly, but there was no fly. 
she became restless, laid aside her magazine, and rang for the porter. Porter, close the window above. Cinders are flying in on me. Windows closed, ma'am, returned the porter. Something is most annoying. I'm being stung in the face by something sharp, she declared testily. Begging yo pardon, ma'am. Yo show is mistaken. There's no flies or musketeers in my car. Don't I know when I'm stung? The porter, tired and crushed, wearily went his way. The stout lady fumed and fussed and fanned herself with a magazine. Chase knew what was going on and was at great pains to contain himself. Enoch's solemn owl face was blank, and Havel, who was shooting shot and causing the lady's distress, bent a pale, ministerial countenance over his paper. Chase watched him closely, saw him raise his head at intervals when he turned a leaf of his paper, but could see no movement of his lips. He became aware presently, when Havel changed his position, that the attack was now to be directed on the bald-headed man in the forward seat. That individual three times caressed the white spot on his head, and then, looking in the air all about him, rang for the porter. Porter, drive the flies out of the car. There ain't no flies, sir. Don't talk back to me. I'm from Georgia. Blacks don't talk back to me where I live. You might be from a hotter place than Georgia, sir, for all I care, replied the porter, turning at last like a trodden worm. I am annoyed. Annoyed. Something has been dropping on my head. Maybe it's water. It comes dot dot like that. Spectio's dotty, sir, said the negro, moving off. And you show ain't the only dotty passenger this trip. The bald man resumed his seat. Unfortunately, he was so tall that his head reached above the seat, affording an alluring target for Havel. Chase, watching closely, saw the muscle along Havel's jaw contract, and then heard a tiny thump as the shot struck much harder than usual. The gentleman from Georgia jumped up, purple in the face, and trembled so that his newspaper rustled in his hand. "'You hit me with something!' he shouted, looking at Thatcher, for the reason, no doubt, that no one could associate Havel's sanctimonious expression with an untoward act. Thatcher looked up in great astonishment from the book in which he had been deeply interested. The by-play had passed unnoticed, so far as he was concerned. Besides, he was ignorant in Havel's genius in the shot-shooting line, and he was a quiet fellow anyway, but quick in temper. "'No, I didn't,' he replied." The southerner repeated his accusation. "'No, I didn't, but I will jolt you one,' returned Thatcher, with some heat. "'Gentlemen, this is unseemly, especially in the presence of ladies,' interposed Havel, rising with the dignity of one whose calling he appeared to represent. "'Most unseemly. My dear sir, calm yourself. No one is throwing things at you. It is only your imagination.' I have heard of such cases, and fortunately my study of medicine enables me to explain. Sometimes on a heated car a person's blood will rise to the brain, and, probably because of the motion, beat so as to produce the effect of being lightly struck. This is most often the case in persons whose hirsute decoration is slightly worn off, er, in the middle, you know? The gentleman from the south sputtered in impotent rage, and stamped off toward the smoking-car. "'Dinner is served in the dining-car ahead,' called out a white-clad waiter. 
and this announcement hurried off the passengers, leaving the car to the players, who had dined before boarding the train. Time lagged, then. The porter lit the lights, for it was growing dark. Four of the boys went into the smoker to play cards, and the others quieted down. After a while, the passengers returned from the diner, and with them the porter, who began making up the berths. Chase watched with interest. "'Let's turn in,' said Enoch. "'It's a long ride, and we'll be tired enough. Some of us must double up, and I'm glad we're skinny.' Enoch boosted Chase into the upper berth and swung himself up. "'Take off your outer clothes,' said Enoch, "'and be comfortable.' Chase found it very snug up there, and he lay back listening to the smooth rush of the train as it sped on into the night, and before long he fell asleep. When he awakened the car was dark, though a faint gray light came through the window above him. He heard somebody walking softly down the aisle, and wondered who it could be. The steps stopped. Chase heard a sound at his feet, and rose to see an arm withdraw between the curtains. He promptly punched Enoch in the side. Enoch groaned and rolled over. "'Some of the boys stealin' our shoes,' whispered Chase. "'It's the porter wantin' em to shine,' said Enoch sleepily. Then he raised his head and listened. "'Yep, it's the porter. I'm glad you woke me. Now listen, you'll hear something funny. Cass always smuggles his bull pup into the car and hides him from the porter and then puts him to sleep at the foot of the berth. That porter will be after Cass's shoes pretty soon.' At intervals of every few minutes the porter's soft, slipshod footsteps could be plainly heard. He was making toward the upper end of the car. "'It's coming to him,' whispered Enoch, tensely. A loud, savage, gurgling growl burst out of the stillness, and then yells of terror. A terrific uproar followed. Bumpings and bangings of a heavy body in the aisle, sharp whacks and blows, steady, persistent growling, screams of fright from the awakened women, wild peals of delight from the ball-players, above all the yelling of the porter. These sounds united to make a din that would have put a good-sized menagerie to blush. It ended with the unlucky negro making his escape, and Cass coaxing his determined protector back into the berth. By and by, silence once more reigned in the Pullman. Chase, having had his sleep, lay there as long as he could, and seeing it was broad daylight, decided he would crawl over Enoch and get out of the berth. By dint of some extraordinary exertions, he got into his clothes and shoes. Climbing over Enoch was no difficult matter, though he did not accomplish it without awakening him. Then Chase parted the curtains, put his feet out, turned and grasped the curtain-pole, and balanced himself momentarily, preparatory to leaping down. The position was awkward for him, and as he loosened his knee-hold he slipped and fell. One of his feet went down hard into a very large, soft substance that suddenly heaved like a swelling wave. As Chase rolled into the aisle, screams rent the air. Help! Help! Thieves! Murder! 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 He had fallen on the fat woman in the lower berth. Chase saw a string of heads bobbing out of the curtains above and below, and heard a mighty clamor that made the former one shrink by comparison. The conductor, brakeman, and porter rushed in. Chase tried to explain. 
but what with the wails of the outraged lady and the howls of the players, it was impossible to make himself heard. He went away and hid in the smoking-car till the train stopped near Steubenville, where they were to change for wheeling. When the Finley team had all stepped off the Pullman, leaving the porter enriched and smiling his surprise, it was plain to Chase that he had risen in the regard of his fellow-players. "'Say, Chase, you're coming on. You'll do, old man. It was the best ever.' The fire escape, my lad, is not in a lady's berth. Go on, what are you giving us? You kicked her in the stomach just by accident? Go on. Chase found it impossible to make the boys believe that he had fallen from the upper berth and had stepped on the poor lady unintentionally. The run along the Ohio to Wheeling was a beautiful one, which Chase thoroughly enjoyed. It was his first sight of a majestic river. During the ride, Mac sat beside him and descanted on baseball in general and base running in particular. Chase, a lad as fast as you ought to make all these catchers crawl under the bench. Now, listen to me. To get away quick is the secret. It's all in the start. Of course, depend on some coaching, but use your head. Don't take too big a lead off the base. Fool the pitcher and catcher. Make em think you ain't going down. Watch the pitcher and learn his motion. Then, get your start just as he begins to move. Before he moves is the time, but it takes practice. Run like a deer, watch the baseman, and hit the dirt feet first, and twist out of his way. But pick out the right time. Of course, when you get a hit-and-run sign, you've got to go. Don't take chances in a close game. I say, don't as a rule. Sometimes, a Darren Steele wins the game. But there's time to take chances, and times not to. Got that? Mac. Where's the bat sack? asked one of the players when they arrived at Wheeling. Sure, I forgot it, said Mac blankly. I'll have to buy some bats. You ought to be in the bush league, said one. How do you expect us to hit without our bats? asked another. Did you forget my sticks? cried Thatcher, championship hitter utterly lost without his favorite bats. Player after player loomed up over the little manager and threatened him in a way that would have convinced outsiders he had actually stolen the bats. Mac threw up his hands in wordless disgust and climbed into the waiting bus. To Chase, riding to the hotel, having dinner, dressing for the game, and then a long bus ride out to the island grounds were details of further enjoyment. Findlay was a great drawing card, and the stands were crowded. Chase was surprised to hear players spoken of familiarly, as if they were members of the home team. That's Castorius, the great pitcher. There's old man Hicks, but say, he can catch some. See, that's good old Enoch, the coacher. Where's the new shortstop? The papers say he's a wonder. Chase moved out of hearing then, and began picking over the new bats Mac had bought. Enoch came up and looked them over, too. Bum lot of sticks, he commented. Say, Chase, Wheeling is a swell town to play in. The fans here like a good game, and don't care who wins. The kids are bad, though. Look out for them. This is a good ground to hit on. You ought to be able to lambast a couple today. If Finnegan pitches, you wait for his slow ball and hit it over the fence. Finley won the game 6-1. to one. Castorius was invincible. Dude Thatcher hit one over the right field fence, and Chase hit one over the left field fence. The crowd cheered lustily after each of these long drives. When the players piled into the bus to ride back to the hotel, Chase saw them bundling up their heads in sweaters and soon divined the cause. 
His enlightenment came in the shape of a swiftly flying pebble that struck him in the head and made him see stars. As the bus rolled out of the grounds, Chase saw a long lane lined with small boys. "'Whip up your horses, you yahoo!' yelled Cass. "'We're off!' shouted another. "'Duck your nuts! Low bridge! Down with your noodles!' Then a shower of stones, mud, apples, and tin cans flew from all sides at the bus. The players fell on the floor and piled upon one another, in every way trying to hide their faces. Chase fell with them and squeezed down as well as he could to avoid the missiles. It was a veritable running of the gauntlet and lasted till the plunging bus had passed the lines and distanced the pursuers. Then came the strenuous efforts imperative to untangle a dozen or more youths of supple bodies. Only the fortunate players who had been quick enough to throw themselves to the floor first had escaped bruises or splotched uniforms, and they were hardly better off because of the smashing they had received. Gee, I got a lump on my head all right, said Chase. That was sweet as riding to slow music. Wait, wait till we strike Kenton. That evening, after supper, while Chase was sitting in front of the hotel, Cass whispered to him to look out for tricks. He spent the evening in and around the lobby and kept his eyes open. Nothing happened, and at ten o'clock he went upstairs to find his room. He unlocked the door and opened it, to be deluged with a flood of water from overhead. Next, a bucket fell on him and almost knocked him down. Shivering and thoroughly drenched, he fumbled on the bureau, finally found matches, and struck a light. A bucket, two sticks, and a string lay on the floor in a great pool of water. "'One of the ch-tricks,' muttered Chase, with chattering teeth. He locked his door, closed and fastened his transom, plugged the keyhole, and then felt reasonably safe. For a long time there were mysterious goings-on in that part of the hotel. Soft steps and subdued voices, snickerings, with occasionally a loud, angry noise, attested to the activity of those who were playing the tricks. Chase finally got to sleep and had a good night's rest. In the morning, as he came out from breakfast, he found most of his team assembled, as usual, in the lobby. "'Have a good night, Chase?' asked several. "'Fine. Little wet, though, early in the evening,' replied Chase, joining in the general laugh. "'Watch for Brill. Don't miss it,' said somebody. Brill was one of the pitchers, a good player, quiet in his demeanor, and a rather unknown quantity. He was a slow, easy-going Virginian. Presently he appeared on the stairs, came down, and with pale face and deliberate steps he approached the players. "'Mawnin', boys,' he said in his southern drawl. "'I sure have something to say to y'all. I don't mind the ice-water, and I don't mind the pillar somebody hit me with, but I'll tell y'all right now, the feller that put that there leapfrog in my bed is going to get licked.' Brill never found out who put the leapfrog in his bed. Wild horses could not have dragged the secret from his comrades. That evening, when the players were sitting in front of the hotel, with their chairs tipped back, a slight, shabbily dressed woman, with a dark shawl over her head, approached and timidly asked for Mr. Castorius. "'Here I am, ma'am. What can I do for you?' replied the pitcher, rising. "'My husband sent me, sir. Jim Ayers he is, sir, and he used to work in Finley, where he knew you.' she said in a low voice. He wants to know if you'll help him, lend him a little money. We're in bad need, sir, and I've a baby. Jim, he's been out of work. 
only got a job last week, and the second day was run over by a team. I read about it in the papers, interrupted Cass. Yes, I remember Jim. He said you'd remember him, she went on eagerly. Jim, he had friends in Ohio. He oughtn't never to have left there. He hasn't done well here. Jim's the best fellow. He's been good to me, and never drinks except when he's down on his luck. Cass gently turned her toward the light. She was only a girl, pale, worn, sad. Sure, I remember Jim, said Cass hurriedly. Fine fellow Jim was, when he left off drinking. I'll lend Jim some money, Mrs. Ayers, if you'll promise to spend it on yourself and baby. The young woman hesitated, then, with a wan, grateful smile, murmured, Thank you, sir. I will. Now, you just go round the corner and wait. Castorius led her a few steps toward the corner. When she had gotten out of sight, he took a roll of bills from his pocket, and detaching one, put it in his hat. Dig up, he said, thrusting his hat under Mac's snub nose. Cass, you're easy. You remember Ayers, don't you? replied Mac. I do. He was strictly N.G., a booze fighter, an all-around scamp. I wouldn't give him the price of a drink. But that girl, his wife, did you see her face? I did, growled Mac, with his hand moving slowly toward his pocket. Dig up, then. Mac dug, and generously. The tall pitcher loomed over Thatcher. Can you spare the price of a few neckties to aid a poor woman? he asked, sarcastically. I can, instantly replied the dude, throwing a bill into Cass's hat. Ball players fight out rivalries even in their charities. Cass glanced grandly down on the dude, and then passed to Havel. The pot's opened for five, he said to Havel. Next to shooting shot, Havel liked best a game of poker. In a flash, he had contributed to the growing fund. I'm in, and it costs two more to play, he replied. Hicks, come on. Cass, I'm broke, and Mac won't give me a cent till Saturday night, answered Hicks. Borrow, then, rejoined Cass curtly. He threw his roll of bills into the catcher's lap. Chase and several other players were ready for Cass, and so escaped calumny. Enoch mildly expostulated. I'm getting tired of being buncoed this way, he remarked. Produce. Ain't you the captain? Don't you draw the biggest salary? Produce, went on the inexorable Cass. But Cass, you're always helping some beggar or other. What? demanded Cass hotly. It was only last week you touched the team for a nigger hobo. Produce. Enoch meekly produced. "'What's the matter?' inquired Benny, lounging out of the hotel door. As usual, he was under the influence of drink. "'Hold on, Cass. Gee, what's all the dough for? Let me in.' "'Never mind, Benny,' Cass replied, just raising a little collection for Jim Ayer's wife. "'Remember Jim?' "'Got drunk with Jim many a time. Hold on there. What's the matter? Is my money counterfeit?' Benny was the most improvident of fellows. He seldom had any money, and his bad habit excluded him from many of the plans and pleasures of his comrades. "'Say, Benny, this isn't a matter of the price of a beer,' replied Cass, moving toward the corner. Benny straightened up. "'You're only kidding me. If I thought you meant that for an insult, say, I'm just as much a sport and gentleman as you any day.' Thereupon, Benny soberly thrust his hand into his pocket, pulled out a bill and some silver, soberly turned the pocket inside out to get the small change, and with great dignity dropped all the money into Cass's hat. End of chapter 9